It's really a privilege to be here, and um, it's really a privilege to, uh, to talk about um, the things that, that, that you are interested in, and, and touching people and changing lives is really the basis of missions and the basis of missionary um, activity. And um, the, first two, the first day, on Sunday, we, we looked at uh, the two aspects of that and tried to sort of lay a, a basis for that tonight. I'm trying to get to the point where we see that each one of us can be active in the ministry. We can be effective in the ministry. And uh, my title tonight is One Godly Person is Enough. One Godly Person. That one godly person could be you. <laughs> and that's enough in, uh, in God's eyes. And uh, I thought to start this, this sermon tonight, I would uh, show a video uh, actually, this video is, is, was made by our staff, and it was really made of, of people that you support through our ministry. And um, these are, are, are one godly people that make a difference in the world. There is a, um, a missionary that I just found out about last year that really touched my life. In fact, on uh, February 6th of last year, I went to um, Boston Massachusetts, to Salem Church, and they were actually uh, commemorating the 200th year of the first missionary being sent out by the United States of America, and that missionary was Adoradam Judson, and Adoradam Judson was a tremendous man of God, and he loved God, and he wanted to serve God. And, of course, in those days, you went on a boat, and usually when you left, it was a long time till you ever got back, if you came back. And as I studied his uh, life and heard about him and heard about the presentations and then did a lot of study on his life, I read a couple biographies, biographies about him afterwards because I was, so, I was so wanting to get a feel for the passion he had for the Lord to do what he did, and was able to persevere through uh, many hardships. One of the things that really intrigued me was be, a week before he left, on February 6th, to go overseas, he was actually going to India, he got married, and they had a, um, a letter that he had sent to his father-in-law that uh, about asking for um, his wife's hand in marriage. And in that letter, it was, it was so depressing <laughs> as you went from one line to another. And then the crook stuff was simply this, that I'm asking for your daughter's hand in marriage, but I can't promise her any prosperity. I can't promise her happiness. I can't promise her a long life. In fact, she'll probably die on the mission field with me. But I believe it's God's will for me to marry your daughter. Now, if you got a letter like that about your daughter, would you you allow her to get married? And the answer is no. He got married one week before they got on the boat and headed for India. They had a big ceremony, and there's a big picture of that ceremony in Salem Church. And we went back to Salem Church to commemorate that time, that, that uh, first missionary going out. 
And that church today is so liberal, they don't even know that Jesus even exists in that church. But back then, it was an evangelical church. Adoram went to India, and he met up with um, William Carey, the great missionary from England. And of course, at that point, we had the War of 1812 going on. And um, because the United States and England were at war, William Carey didn't want him there. <laughs> so he goes over to Burma. And uh, Burma is a malaria-infected place, a very difficult place. And he started his ministry. And I read his, all the things that he did in the 42 years of ministry that he had over there. He brought to Jesus Christ around eight people, eight people he won to the Lord in all those years of ministry in Burma. In that same time, he lost two wives. He lost five or six children. And he lost five or six co-workers who had come to work with him, including two women who were very faithful. He actually lost 13 people. He only brought eight people to the Lord, and he lost 13, including his own life. He got malaria and died on the way back to, back to home. And you look at his life and you say, boy, what a sacrifice for so little. And look at all the people that died. And look at, just look at this life. But the thing that he did is he translated the word of God into Burmese. And the people in Myanmar, which is modern Burma now, because we have missionaries over there, we have a seminary there in uh, Norfolk, and a guy that's planted a whole bunch of churches there. The people, the Christians in Burma, under a very strict military dictatorship, Look back to Adoradium Johnson, and they're still studying out of his translation of the Word of God. And people are still coming to Christ because of the work he did for those 42 years. Where he was there working and laboring and sharing the gospel and didn't see much fruit. He was certainly a man, a one godly person, who, made, who was enough, who made a big difference in people's lives. And sometimes we look at, at great leaders like Billy Graham or people that you know, and you think, boy, they're doing great things for the Lord. But you know, all of us can do little things, and we can, we can be as effective in people's lives as, as these great uh, people that we look up to all the time. And tonight, I want to look in the Scriptures. We can look at all kinds of people in the Scriptures that made a difference for God in the Old and New Testament. I mean, you can just name them, a uh, whole bunch of them. But tonight I want to look at the guy that's sort of obscure. Probably you don't hear very many sermons on him. I've never heard a sermon at all on his, his life. But I think it was a man who was very uh, humble in, a, in an earlier time in the Old Testament. And did, he did a significant thing for the nation Israel. And I just uh, really encourage this guy because he's a man of the Word of God. And tonight, if you don't get anything else out of, any, out of this message, I want you to understand how important it is to be related to the Word of God because it's the power of God unto salvation. And the Word of God is alive and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. It pierces. It pierces, dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. 
and the joints and the marrow and the discerner and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of your mind. It does spiritual surgery on the inside and it changes you from the inside out. And if you're not connected with the word of God, you're not going to be very effective in the kingdom of God. And so I encourage you to do that. The person I'm looking at tonight is Ezra, and he's the Old Testament. He's right before Nehemiah. He's right after the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He's right before them. And so um, if you would turn to Ezra chapter 7, when we get to the Scripture, that's where we'll begin. Now, they give you some context. Let's look at Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. You have the Abrahamic covenant that was given to the Jewish people. They were really supposed to be a godly people. They were supposed to be God's example to the whole world. And they were supposed to be the evangelists of the world. And, of course, they're the ones that were given directly the, the word of God. Uh, we see Moses up on the Mount Sinai and God actually writing the word in rock, the Ten Commandments in rock. And uh, that was the beginning of the, the Decalogue. And then we had all the other instructions that were given to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And we saw that uh, the nation wasn't very faithful. And um, when they were supposed to go into promised land, they sent in some spies and the spies came back. And because they saw giants in the land and because uh, they thought they couldn't defeat giants with the Lord's help, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And um, finally, they, they took the land, but they made a big mistake. They were told in the Old Testament, they were told in Exodus chapter 34, verse 11 and following, this is what God told the nation through Moses. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezarites, the Hevites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asterum. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you are, you, and you eat of the, of the sacrifice, and you take their daughters of your sons and their daughters whore, after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. They were not supposed to intermarry with the inhabitants, and they were supposed to really destroy the inhabitants because they were so sinful, so perverted, and that was God's will. And, of course, we know that that didn't happen. It started out well, but it didn't end well. And finally, the people wanted a king after the period of judges where nobody, nobody was following the Lord. Everything was, everybody was doing something after the Lord's... Uh, 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 they were doing things after their own eyes, and um, they were in rebellion against God. And then we have the age of the kings, where Samuel had to anoint a king. He didn't want to, but he had to. And then we had uh, the kings, and we have David, the great king, and then his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the, the, uh, the uh, nation is split into two. You have the upper kingdom with the upper ten, ten uh, tribes, and the lower uh, two with um, Judah and Benjamin, and the upper uh, the northern kingdom had ten had kings, and they were always ungodly kings. They, they never followed the Lord. And in the south, 
In Judah, you had some kings that were good and some kings were bad. And eventually, the nation became so sinful that God sent Nebuchadnezzar down and he destroyed the temple and he carried the people out of the land as a judgment on their sinfulness and their perversion. Because they intermarried, they intermingled, they committed the same sins that the nations were committing as Israel went into the land. And because of that, God judged. And God always judges sin. I believe he judges sin individually. I believe he, got, I believe he judges sin nationally. And I believe you can see nations rise when they follow God's commands. And I think you see nations fall when they do not. And so I think that we come to a period now where Ezra is going to become uh, to the fore. And the background is that we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar now has, has, in the, the Babylonian kingdom, has now been turned over to Persia. And God worked through a pagan king, Cyrus, and made a decree in 538 B.C. And the decree was that the children of Israel could return back to the land and they could rebuild the temple that was destroyed. And then we had Darius, the next king, who was also a Persian, make a similar uh, proclamation. And then we have Xerxes as well making a proclamation. And when King Cyrus made his proclamation in 538, Zerubbabel took a group of about 50,000 Jews, and they left Babylon, and they came back to Jerusalem, and they started to rebuild the temple. And it took them 22 years, and finally the temple was completed, and they were there, but they were starting to flounder. And then we have God working in a man's life who's living in Babylon. He's, a, he's of a priestly line, if you look at Ezra chapter 7, um, you can see uh, his priestly line. He goes right back to Aaron, and he's a man of the Word of God, and he studies the Word of God. And if you want to look at um, the way he, uh, his character and the way uh, he lived his life, you look at verse 6. It says this, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe, in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord, his God, upon him. The hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. The good hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, there's certain things there. It says, that, first of all, in, this, in my uh, copy of God's Word, which is the new King James, it says he was a skilled scribe. Up to this time in the nation Israel, scribes were basically secretaries. They took down what the prophet would say. You know, Elijah had his, pro- his scribe, and uh, Elisha had his scribe, and they would just copy down what the prophet had said. But when you get to Ezra, we find out that he's a skilled scribe, which meant he was not only one of copier scripture, but he's one who studied and taught the scripture. So this is a man who knew the law in and out. He knew God's word in and out, and he, he lived it out because the good hand of the Lord was upon him. And when you, file God, when you follow God's will, and you're in God's word, and you do things God's way, God's good hand of blessing resides upon you, and that's what you want to live this life. And so Ezra has this, and it's interesting in the scriptures, it's very interesting to me that this phrase, the good hand of the Lord upon him, 
shows up several times. If you go down to verse 9, it says, On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of God, of his God upon him. And then if you turn over to uh, verse uh, 28, in the second half of the verse, So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. If you go over to chapter 8, verse 16 says, Then by the good hand of our God upon us. And then when you go to verse 21, 22b, the last part of the verse, it says, The hand of the God was upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. And then if you go down to verse uh, 31, in the middle of the verse, it says, And the hand of our God was upon us. So God was blessing this effort. God was blessing Ezra. He's going to come back to the, the Jerusalem, to the temple that's been rebuilt. It's now 80 years later after the Cyrus made his great proclamation, allowed the people to come back to the land. And because of that, now he's able to start teaching the word of God and start getting people uh, redirected. And so that's his mission and that's his desire. And then when you look at, um, if you go back and look at chapter 7, you have Artaxerxes' great proclamation. And uh, the proclamation means that he's going to allow Ezra to leave. And evidently, he had a good relationship with Artaxerxes and uh, had an impact on Artaxerxes. And I think that impact came from the prophet Daniel and the prophecies that he made in the scriptures. And because of that, uh, the government leaders were more open uh, after Nebuchadnezzar uh, and other kings uh, of Babylon and then uh, Persia, that they were open to Ezra uh, giving advice. And because he had this high position, he was able to leave and he was able to be blessed and come back to the promised land. And so when we get down to uh, verse, when we get down to chapter 8, and we get down to verse 31. Notice what it says. Then we departed from the river Ahava in the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. And so they were able to come down and, and arrive safely. And then he was able to, to get there. They had a lot of wealth that they brought with them. The king, Arxerxes, had given them a lot of wealth. In fact, he had given them three and a half tons of silver to bring down there. So it was a great caravan that came down, and God had protected them because they didn't have a military uh, escort. And God brought them safely there, and they made an accounting, and all the, all the gold and silver and everything that came with them was, uh, was provided, and not one little cent was even lost, and so that was a great blessing. And so they come, and they rest three days. And so everything is going according to plan. And here's the thing that I found as a leader, and I'm sure if you're a leader or even if you're a Christian trying to live the Christian life, you have times in your life when you're sort of like on the top of the mountain and, uh, you know, you're in the Word of God and, and God's speaking to you and everything just seems to be turned out right and you're, you're just involved in the ministry and just things, everything's going well. But then there always comes that big problem. And when you're in leadership of, of ministries, problems come at you more than just one at a time. They come at several, several 
different things hit you from different angles. And sometimes you just wonder, what is going on here? What have I done? Have I sinned? Have I done something wrong? And um, uh, here we have this, this great problem that's going to hit Ezra. And I think it's, it's because of his biblical training. He had the right answer, and he had the right reaction. And because he had the right answer and the right reaction, God is going to use him. Look at verse 9, and we see the big problem that's going to come. When these things were done, in other words, they all arrived safely and they're, they're back in the land and they have everything set up. The leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pazarites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they, have given, for they have taken some of our daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of these lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. This is a great problem for the nation Israel. Here, God in his mercy and grace after he had to judge these same people, had to judge the same ancestors of these people because of the identical sins that they had committed. He has now allowed them, he has maneuvered pagan kings to allow them to come back into the land. They have assembled people, they have rebuilt the temple. Things are, going, are starting to turn around for the whole nation. And then we find out when 80 years later, when Ezra winds up, down in Jerusalem, he finds out that the people of Israel are committing the same old sin. They're committing the same old sin. Now, I think there's a lesson here in several different directions. Number one, all of us have a weakness in our character. There's an area in our character where we're more likely to sin than some other areas. You know, I personally don't drink. I personally don't need to drink. I've never learned to smoke. No problem for me. I don't smoke. But there are other people that may have a weakness that way. Maybe it's a weakness of pornography. Maybe we got hooked on pornography. And for males especially, I think that's always an area, a weakness. We have to be careful. We have to be open with our wives. We have to protect ourselves from that. The internet is a great thing. You can get a lot of information there. You can find out things you can never have access before. But boy, today, uh, you can hardly get on there without seeing something you shouldn't see. You need to turn it off look somewhere else, or just shut it down. There are recurring sins that Satan uses. Satan, Satan watches us, and he knows our area of weakness, and he knows how to come at us. He knows how to feed us. He knows how to get us off the trail. The thing that Satan does not want us to do is to be a person who is in touch with God, who's reading the Word of God, who's living out the principles of the Word of God, the person who is guided by the Spirit of God, the person that is doing God's will. 
he's going to try to thwart that. He's going to try to tempt you. And he's going to try to get those areas of weakness. That's where he's going to come at you. He's going to try to do that. Maybe it's pride. Maybe he's going to make you think you're, you're better than you are. One of the things that God has shown me over the years, I can get to the point in my own life where I, don't, I can't do anything. <laughs> I've, I've ceased to try to do things. I just can't do anything. When they chose me at the board meeting to be the president of the mission, after Jim Blackwood, I thought they were nuts. I was a pastor in a church down in New Jersey. It was growing, and God has blessed us, and God was using us, and we had a great missions program. And I was happy there. But I didn't have any contacts. Jim Blackwood was a great guy. He was a guy that um, started out with Youth for Christ. In fact, he was the number one Youth for Christ leader. He was the insurance business. He was the million-dollar seller. He had a reward for that. <laughs> then after Youth for Christ, he went to Crusade Evangelism. And there he set up uh, crusades with Barry Moore all over Canada, U.S., and thousands of people became saved. But while he did that, they would go into community, and all the churches worked together. He had all the contacts of all the pastors and all the churches. And so when he came and took over Global Outreach in 1970... Why, he had all these, all these contacts. Man, I grew up in a town, I already told you, it doesn't exist anymore. I'm in a, uh, I'm in a, I'm a, I'm next to a resort. Ocean City, New Jersey is where, where the resort was, but we were across the, uh, we were across the bay on the high ground and, uh, in Marmora, New Jersey. And I didn't know anybody. And I thought the board calling me to be the president of the mission was probably, I was concerned about that because I had no contacts like that. I was concerned about raising funds. I thought I'd be the one that shut down the ministry. And uh, when I went to that meeting, it was funny. Uh, there, was no, there was nothing on the agenda that said that we were going to talk about a new president. The agenda looked very normal, and there was just one category at the bottom. It said other business. And Jim gets up and says, I believe it's God's will for Brian Albrecht to be the next president of the Welsh Mission. And um, um, I, had, I quickly came up with two, two things. One, I had to have a unanimous vote from the board if I would even consider it. And after that, I needed at least a month for my wife to pray about it. In the first two weeks, we weren't going to do it because I didn't, couldn't see that. I've, I never aspired to be a mission leader. I aspired to be a pastor of a church. And I felt like the Lord had blessed me, and I was half good at that. But being a mission president is a whole different job description, whole di different responsibilities. And... Um, first two weeks of that prayer thing, we weren't going to do it. I was going to stay in my church. I was safe there. I could do that. God could bless me there. But the, ta the, the next two weeks, as I was reading the Word of God, I kept seeing this idea of reaching the whole world for Christ. Now, our church had a wonderful missions program. We, we had 25% of our budget go to missions directly. And then we were sending out all kinds of teams and all kinds of people. We, we had, uh, I think, 30 different families we were supporting on the missions thing. There were some 
there were there was one year and a second year almost the, we got to the same level. There was one year where fifty percent of the, every nickel that came through that church went to missions. Fifty percent. And we had an active congregation. We had people going overseas. We had people coming back who were excited about missions. We had people that when missionaries wanted to have people pray, they would pray. And God blessed that. And we had an exciting church. Those, those people were ready to, to do good things for the Lord. They were involved in the Lord's work. But I couldn't reach the whole world through my church. I read I, different places, sure but not the whole world. And it was that that the Lord impressed on me that I should take this on. Now, I took it on. I thought it's God's will, so I, I need to do God's will. So we, we moved from New Jersey, which is um, um, it's called the Garden State. It's not like paradise here, but it's a Garden State. And we moved to Buffalo. And um, we, you know, you, you don't move to Buffalo unless you, you're sent there by God. And so we went, we went to Buffalo, and um, the first year and a half, I was the executive vice president under Jim, and then he turned it over in 2003. And my great concern was that I wouldn't be able to basically raise the money to keep the ministry going. I had no contacts. Where do I go to get money? I don't, I don't know anybody. And the only place I had to go was the Lord. Lord, here I am. What am I going to do? <laughs> you have to do something. I can't do anything. And he did it. First year, we, we met our budget. Second year, we met our budget. Third year, we met our budget. And now I'm at the point as, as in the mission that I don't, have to, I don't have to be promoting anything, really. Because the Lord keeps sending stuff to us, send us people, sends us new opportunities. Right now we're probably going to partner with 300 churches in Indonesia. And those, some of those churches are large and have 25 churches they planted. And they're all over Asia. They're in Vietnam and they're in Cambodia, they're in Laos, they're in Myanmar, where we already are, they're in China. And I haven't even, someone else brought that to us. I haven't, I haven't done that. I've seen the Lord just do tremendous things. And it's so amazing to let God do these things because when he does it, you know it's his will. You know it's him doing it, not you doing it. It's not my effort. It's not my work. It's his work. And the thing that I have to do and the thing that you have to do is just be faithful each day. One of the things that I... I started doing years ago was read through the Bible every year. I'm, I'm in my 43rd year of reading through the Bible every year. And I tell other people they ought to read through the Bible. One thing as a preacher, you need to do it because you need to remind, be reminded of all the stories, right? You forget. But the Lord speaks to you as you do those things. I read an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage. I read a Psalm. I read a Proverb. Every day. And the thing is, God speaks to you. You get, you get in the word of God and it speaks to you. It's, it, it, it comes off the page at you. And it points fingers at things where you're weak. And it, and it, and it, it writes your wrong decisions. It, it writes the, 
the, the wrong thoughts that you have, the sinful thoughts that you have. It writes those things. It puts its finger on there. There's areas when I started to stray, and when I'm reading the Bible, and it's just like God saying, here it is. You don't do that anymore. You stop. And you're obedient to that. You stop. Because you want to do what God wants you to do, not what you want to do. Man, when I do things, it always gets messed up. But if God does things, it works out. And so here we have Ezra. And he's got this problem, this horrendous problem. Here's a guy who's made all this effort. He's made all these arrangements. He's made this long travel from Babylon down to Jerusalem. He's been watching over these people. He's been pastoring these people as they've come down. He's setting up shop. He's looking forward to a new ministry. And all of a sudden, we have sin in the camp. And it's a big sin in the camp. It's the same sin that this nation can continues to repeat over and over and over again. And so how does he confront it? Well, notice verse 3. So when I heard this thing, this is Ezra speaking. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. He couldn't believe this was happening again. He couldn't believe it. He was overwhelmed. Verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. The only place he could go is to the Lord is God. You know, that's the only place we can go. You know, we're facing troubles, persecutions, and even sin in our life. It's the only place that we can go. That's where Ezra went. And then we have his, his prayer. Verse 6, and I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed. Look at the humility of this man. I am so ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities, our sins have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty of our iniquities. We, we, our kings, our priests, have delivered under the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. They've been humiliated. They've been overwhelmed. They've been defeated because of this. Verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. He's, he's actually going to read back the word of God to God, what he said. Which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering 
to possess as an unclean land with uncleanness of the peoples of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their iniquity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our guilt, our great guilt, since you, are God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, you have given us such deliverance as this. He's falling on the mercies of God. And he's made that statement about the iniquities. God didn't judge them, even though he judged the nation and he pulled them out of the land. He didn't judge them as harshly as he should have. Because basically they broke his law, and under that law, they should have been executed. They should have died for the sins because they broke God's law. One of the things I think that is wrong with the church today, and I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about the church in general. I believe that we don't have our God lifted up high enough. I believe that our God is too puny. And I believe that we just take advantage of his goodness and his grace. We live in a land of plenty. We have our basic needs met. We have abundance here. We can do anything we want. We can go anywhere we want. We can do anything we want. And because of that, we're not dependent on God. And because of that, we don't see God high and lifted up. We don't, we, we don't fear God. You know, the children of Israel, when they were at Mount Sinai, and God started booming out his word, he started to... to started to, to tell the Ten Commandments, just speak of the Ten Commandments. And the whole mountain shook, and there was smoke and everything. Those people were afraid. They were so afraid to hear God's voice that they asked Moses to be the intermediary. They talked to Moses, and Moses will talk to us. They were afraid of, of God, the fear of God. We describe the fear of God in theological circles today as reverential trust. That's how we describe that. And it is reverential trust. It's not bad to say that, but to me, it's, it's a term that doesn't really get a hold of us. It doesn't really grip us. There's a text in Romans chapter 9 that is really scary to me, and I'm going to share it with you today. Romans 9. 9.14, what shall I say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God says it's up to him. I will love who I will love. I will have compassion upon who I have compassion. It's my decision and my decision alone. So then it is not him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's up to God to do these things. And if we have a great God who's watching down on us, and we're so easily swayed, we're so easily content with all the wonderful little pleasant things, the recreational things 
we, you know, we get in the place and we, we feel pressure. So what do we do? We need relief. Well, we go and do this pleasure, or we go on the Internet, or we go and watch TV, or we go and do this. And we don't spend God's time with God. We don't fear God in the same sense that I think we should fear. I'm talking to myself. I think if we would have a reverential fear, a real fear of the Lord, the Lord can do anything with me he wants then my response to that is, yes, Lord, I want that as well. Whatever you want to do with me, whether it's good or bad, whether it means cancer or not cancer, whether it means life or death, that's okay with me. Because I want to do what you want me to do. And I think if we had Christians like that, I think it would make a tremendous difference in the world. I think it being a tremendous difference on the culture because God would empower us in such a great way that we would be doing these great works. We'd be like, like this Adoradium Judson who, who, who's just an awesome person. We could do those things. So what is the outcome of, of this? Ezra fasted and prayed. He confessed the sins of the nation. He asked God for his mercy, for his forgiveness, even though they didn't deserve it. And what happened? In chapter 10, they repented. They repented. They changed their way. The leaders of the people came and told Ezra, that he was right. That's what God's word said. And then they made a covenant that they would put away their pagan wives and children. But they did it in a humane way. They didn't go home and kick these women out and do that. They would have these communities sit down and they would bring the families in one by one. And you know, if the woman in the family had adopted God, the Jewish God, they could stay. They didn't have to be thrown out. But if the wife was still doing her pagan rituals and doing those kinds of things, then she had to leave. And so they're trying to purify the nation. And because of that, the nation lasted longer. And God blessed them. Nehemiah comes down. He puts walls around the city. They start getting back to a normal temple worship, and they get back to a normal lifestyle, and God's good hand of blessing is on them for a time until the Romans come and take over when they're back in a sinful condition again. One, one of the things that this, this passage really brings out clearly is we ought to be careful how we have intimate connections with other people, particularly in marriage. As I was a pastor, I had these little girls, these little Christian girls that are in my church, come through our youth, youth group, and they come in and say, oh, I want to marry so-and-so. I'm so in love with him. Well, does he know Jesus? No, he's not a believer. Then why do you want to marry him? Oh, I think God will bring him. I think God will change his mind. I think he'll be saved. I said, well, 
my policy is I won't, I won't marry them <laughs> if they both aren't believers. I say, well, well, why don't you bring them in and we'll, we'll talk about it. So I had a premarital course that I made everyone go through. And um, I would give them probably two or three meetings. And if the guy or gal wasn't going to receive Christ, then I wasn't going to marry them. They could get someone else to do it. Because I thought it was an unequal yoke, and I think the New Testament sort of teaches against that. But these, they fall in love, and they, they want to usurp the Word of God. And we have the families. The families are allowing this. That's, in, my, in my congregation, deacons and elders, families... We're allowing these kids to come in here and want to get married to an unbeliever. And it just, where does the word of God come in? Where does God's command? He's in heaven. He's watching over the affairs of men. His rules and his laws still, still are here. Yes, we're under the age of grace. Yes, the rituals are no longer necessary. Yes. But the Ten Commandments are still, still valid. You know, we don't have the laws against uh, leprosy and those kinds of things anymore. No, we don't. We're under the age of grace. But the basic principles in the Old Testament laws are there. It always amazes me when people talk about how hard it is uh, to have the Ten Commandments. We don't want to have the Ten Commandments. Well, there are Ten Commandments, but they're there for your, your good. If you keep the Ten Commandments, you're going to live better, aren't you? You're not going to be in sin. You're not going to have any guilt. You break a Ten Commandment, you know, you, thou shalt not steal. You go steal, what happens? You go to jail. Thou shalt not kill. You kill, what happens? You get murdered. Honor your mother and father. There's a promise that your days will be long upon the earth in which the Lord like God has given you. There's a promise. Take care of mom and dad and God will take care of you. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Or anything your neighbor owns. Don't commit adultery. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. Basic commands. But if you just follow the Ten Commands, you're going to live better. And why would you bring an unbeliever and an unbeliever's family into an intimate relationship like marriage. And when one family marries another family, you know, when a girl and a guy get married, they're bringing their families together. Why do you want to bring light and darkness together? It doesn't work. There's going to be problems down the road. I've seen some of these little girls that got married. Some of the guys actually did get saved. But a lot of them didn't. And then we have the big D word, divorce. And then you have the kids. And the whole thing unravels. And then they blame God for their problem. Do it right the first time. Do it the way God wants you to do it. And he'll bless you. And he'll use you. I had a um, testimony of four people that were on a short-term trip to Sierra Leone. These are interviews. <clears throat> I hope we have, I, we'll see if we get this queued up here. Uh, the poor gal there, uh, she was, we came out here and the service was going away and I couldn't, 
I couldn't uh, do, I couldn't share what I needed. So she's trying her best. So um, could you show those interviews? I didn't expect to see such an extreme level of poverty throughout the entire country. And that part was really um, very overwhelming. And actually, at one point, I actually had to just kind of close my mind in and hide behind the camera and pretend like it wasn't as big as it was. In Sierra Leone, it was so easy and so wonderful. And everybody that you mentioned it to was willing to stop and talk and listen about Christ. And in my two weeks in Sierra Leone, and I was actually only in country for a little better than a week, I talked to more people about Christ and had more questions asked of me about Christ than I have as my four years as a Christian here in the United States. And there was one little boy named Joshua that um, seemed to hang out a lot with me. Whenever I would drop something, he would be there to pick it up. And he was just my little guy. And I knew that within a about two days, I'd be able to say to him, there you go, there's clean water, and there's as much as you want. And so when the water started pouring um, out of that pump, that was my greatest joy, was to be able to tell Joshua, you can have as much water as you want. There's kids that die every single day um, from lack of clean water. Um, and this is something that we can't just sit around and say, oh, I know that this is happening someplace else, and somebody really ought to do something about that. But I think since I've been back, it's just been really urgent. I've got to do something. We've got to do something. Um, we can't just sit back and let this happen because they were born in a different country than I was born, and that's why I have more than enough, and they don't have anything. It's just not okay. When you've seen the truck perform in Africa, we never seen it run here, but when you've seen it run in Africa, it was like, God was in the whole thing, and that's, that is the biggest thing here. God was in all of us going to Africa. I think the thing that struck me the most with Africa was this guy named Ernest. He was about my age. Um, he had these black shoes on and no shoelaces, and this was like day three. Um, he asked me for my boots, and... That is the thing that sticks with me the most. There was a man my age asking me for my boots. And when I look at what I, what I have and what they have, they don't have a quarter of what we have. In my transition back here, what I've come to realize is that I'm a blessed man. Tonight, I just want to finish with this. Um, we have a missionary, Joe Harvey. I started talking to him um, in the Sunday school class about the, he was a boy that was seven years old, remember, and his dad was an elder in the church in Long Island and kept bringing uh, missionaries home for lunch. And one, one uh, Sunday, they brought a missionary doctor from the, from the Republic of Congo. And Joe, at that time, was called into the ministry. And... Um, his dad uh, quizzed him about that because he's only seven years old and he, he was afraid that maybe it was just sort of like an emotional decision or something. But his dad felt that it was a valid call of God on his life. And his dad went and uh, fixed it in his will so that um, Joe would always would get his medical education. And his dad did die young and that will did help him get through medical school. And I told the the sort of humorous thing. I told the uh, the people in the science school class that Joe was looking for a wife and he would 
only give a, a gal one shot at it, and if she wasn't going to be a missionary to the Congo, why she didn't get a second date. And uh, finally, he met Becky, a nurse, and she was called to missions as well. And um, the joke is that when she finally got there, when they finally raised their sport and got there, she, she got down her knees on the tarmac after they landed with the plane on the tarmac. She kissed the tarmac. She got up, and she looked into to Joe's face, and she said, I've fulfilled my obligation. Let's go home. But she was only joking. And um, they started a ministry in the clinic, and they went up to Infondo, where we had a missionary, uh, Dr. John Look, who had, years ago had uh, actually re- led so many people to the Lord. There's two denominations over there that, um, of churches, 240 churches in each denomination. So he had a tremendous ministry. But Joe started in the clinic and in this area, and he started looking around the, the, the society there, and he saw they need more than just a clinic because uh, a lot of um, OBGYN problems, uh, babies, uh, just terrible, terrible conditions there. And so he went out, and he saw this um, old communist youth camp. And it turns out that the president's wife of the country had, uh, in 1986, she had built that communist youth camp to... Uh, to, for that area so that they would train the youth in communism. And he started doing prayer walks. It's a 20-acre 20 uh, piece of land, and it had 28 buildings on it. He started doing prayer walks around it and just asked the Lord, if it's Lord's will, that maybe someday we would get that piece of property. And uh, finally, the president's wife came up to their area. There was a big uh, celebration up there. Uh, I think it was one of the anniversaries of his elections or whatever. And he had a chance to sit down with the president's wife, and he asked her if he could turn that old communist youth camp, which now is in disrepair and overgrown, into a hospital. And she agreed to that, and so she gave us the uh, property. And over probably four or five years, we had several short-term teams go over, and they rehabilitated the, the, the grounds and um, just rehabilitated uh, the infrastructure with electricity and uh, water. And um, we even have one building that has a surgical suite in it. We have two surgical suites where we do surgery there. We don't do heart transplants or anything like that, but we do do uh, surgeries. And um, we also have a chiropractic there, and um, we have a a dental uh, practice there. And we also have uh, a a couple that came from uh, Hong Kong who do eye uh, surgeries and uh, help, help with eye diseases, which are very rampant over there. And all, that's all because of Joe Harvey and his faith and trust in God and how God had blessed him. One godly person can do great works. Today, every day in that compound, at least one person comes to know Jesus Christ personally. In that culture, when a person goes into the hospital, the family comes and takes care of the person. They feed the person. They actually uh, clean the person, and, and uh, they watch over the person. So every morning, we have chapel. And a lot of the families come to chapel and get saved as well. And uh, so it's a wonderful thing. And then when a person is saved in our hospital, they're able, we are able to plug them into the two denominations, the evangelical churches there, so that they can get discipled and can move forward. And so God has really blessed that over a period of time. I've been over there several times, and I'll be going over there um, at the beginning of next month uh, again to see that ministry. And it's just such a wonderful thing. They're so creative over there. Joe is a great man of God, and he has shown me that a lot of times people come in and they won't have the right medicine to fix the 
disease or the problem a person has. And the only thing they can do is pray for that person. And it's amazing the number of times that God answers the prayer and heals a person in spite of the fact that they didn't have the right medication or the right procedure to be able to help that person. One guy came in. Um, he was on his bicycle, and he ran into a front-end front loader. And um, he had several bones crushed in his body, in his arms and his legs and in his torso. And they, they jury-rigged up a, a big circular thing around, and they put him in, and they just, uh, they just tied his limbs and, on, a, on a, a board so that he couldn't move anything. And... Um, after two months, the, uh, the bones healed, and uh, the young boy was able to, to uh, get, start functioning again. He had to go through rehab and do lots of things, but uh, they saved his life. And um, it's just amazing what, what God is doing at that hospital, just the miracles that take place. And while they were there, they found out that there's a lot of lepers. It seems like the pygmies in that area have a, have a um, propensity to, uh, to get leprosy. And... Um, so Sarah Spear, one of our, she's been over there 30 or 40 years. She uh, had a burden for that, and the Lord is sending the funds. I was able to dedicate the, the property, and now we have a leper clinic, and we're, we're helping lepers and able to clean their wounds and, and t- tell them about Jesus Christ. And it's just a really amazing, just the fact that if a person is willing to follow God wherever God wants them to go, if it's overseas, go. If it's here, stay, but do what God wants you to do and be generous, and do the things that God tells you to do. It's amazing, over a lifetime, how much you can accomplish for the kingdom of God. And I think there's great rewards for all of us who follow him each day. And I believe, I believe it starts in the morning when you get up to read the word of God and to pray and to give the, give the day back to God, ask for divine appointments, and ask him to guide and direct you, and he will. Father, thanks again for your grace, for the love you have for us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for the wonderful prayer meeting, and thank you for the good praise and worship we have here tonight. Thank you for the good missionary report. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing in this church. We pray that your good hand of blessing would be upon this church as we ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.